Sorry for using the word shit too many times there. I was going to use it since you used it. Um, We're going to get an explicit rating. <laughs> I just can't believe that you two are the ones swearing and not me. So <laughs> keep at it. With it, Bridget. Sometimes uh -huh. it's warranted. <laughs> so that when you do say things, it makes sense. Uh, it's not, you know, some type of algorithm that you're trying to. Well, I heard on the podcast, Dr. Beachy said to use the word shit with teenagers to show you're not part of the system. It Quote of the day right there. Quote of the day. Yeah. Um, the day. Dr. I, Beachy said to use the word shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, we knocked the shit out of this one. <laughs> Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I'm so excited to be back with our team again this month as we're uh, closing out the month of May. This will come out in the beginning of June. We had a different episode last month, and while it was so great to record in person with people, I just missed our team. I missed our group. I missed our dynamics. I'm really happy that we're back. And um, we're going to be talking pediatrics today, which I'm really excited about that. But before we do, let's introduce our co and start with our icebreaker question of the month. I have been having a lot of driving time with my kids this month and I have, uh, you know, got the full on mom van drop down screen and the DVD player and my kids, I have an almost seven-year-old and then five-year-old triplets. Uh, so four boys and they're in full on Pokemon fever. We are like Pokemon every day, all the different ones. They are big fans. And so it got me thinking about, I wonder about when you were children, what was your favorite show? What did you like to watch? Maybe it was the Saturday morning cartoons or whatever it was that was fun for you. Um, let's go around our circle and introduce ourselves. To my left, we have Natalie Serrano. Oh, wow. Did, did you guys? I tried. I practiced. That, that was fantastic. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, that was great. Uh, yes. So Neftali Serrano, if you're able to roll your eyes, Neftali Serrano is fine as well. I'm CEO here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Happy to be back. I feel like I missed this crew. It's been, uh, uh, you know, we've missed a couple of months here, although that last episode, Grace, really great job with that. Really great. It was great to hear some of the voices on that podcast, Randall Wright and others. So uh, thank you for that. So uh, favorite cartoon growing up? Yes, I have lots of fond memories for those Gen Zers out there. We used to get up on Saturday morning and you know make ourselves the best sugary breakfast we could possibly make, cuddle up on the couch and turn on Saturday morning cartoons. And there'd be a laundry list of cartoons. Looking back on them, they weren't terribly high quality, but at the time they looked fantastic. And it was just living the dream with your bowl of Lucky Charms and watching, you know, GI Joe or the Smurfs or My Little Pony or stuff like that. But my favorite cartoon was actually after school because that's the other thing we used to do right after school. If you get your homework done quick enough, you could turn on the afternoon cartoons. And my favorite was the Transformers. Just loved the sci-fi element. I loved Optimus Prime and how just he was and how he would fix stuff for the Autobots and all that. So, yep. I love it. Thank you for sharing. We're big into Transformers at my house too. There's a whole rescue bots, like Transformers revival. It's a lot of fun. 
next on my screen is Dr. Bridget Beachy. I'm Bridget. I'm a clinical psychologist by trade. I work as a BHC, Director of Behavioral Health, and an FQHC here in the state of Washington, work as a consultant. Uh, and I'd say Nickelodeon is where it was at. Uh, I'm an older millennial. And that was right when there was the prime of Nickelodeon. So if you remember Doug, Doug Funny, <laughs> and Patty Mayonnaise, and Skeeter, and all those folks. So I really liked Doug. I uh, also really liked the Rugrats uh, back in the day. So they had a bunch of lineups. I, I, was, I, I don't remember all the rest of the ones they had, but um, Nickelodeon was where it was at. Nicola, I think we're pretty close to the same age. And I had that same list of favorite ones and uh, Snick, Saturday Night, Nick, oh. and all the, I know it's all coming back to me oh. as you're talking about it. Are you, are you afraid <laughs> of the dark, which was not a, a oh. cartoon, but yeah, 85 yeah. baby over here. So me oh, so, uh, too. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we couldn't, we couldn't watch Nickelodeon because we couldn't afford cable, but <laughs> I was, I was jealous of the kids who did watch Nickelodeon. It was around. <laughs> Uh, Deepu, I'm realizing as we're going around talking about Saturday morning cartoons that we had this conversation a few months ago and we talked about that your childhood was different um, as far as the media that you watched um, growing up. And so I am curious to hear from you, though, what's what was one of your favorite shows or something you enjoyed? All right. Um, well, yeah, I don't think I had a TV in the house till I was in like sixth grade or seventh grade. Right. And so uh, that's when my family moved to the U.S. Uh, but my uh, so I was watching a lot of cartoons, but I didn't understand what they were saying for like a couple of years. You know, <laughs> I thought of the language. That's awesome. uh, but the things that stay out to me are Gargoyles, X-Men, Batman and Dexter's Laboratory and Pinky and the Brain. Like those are like, uh, like classes. those are like where my mind goes. Uh, <laughs> X Men for sure. I like. I still remember like, you know, like that whole thing that would come on, and I'll be up, like just barely waking up and turning to get the X Men thing. So, those are that's my list. There's people weeping in their cars right now as they listen as they listen to this with remembering their childhoods. Oh, the sentimental nostalgic. I launched you right into that and forgot to ask you to actually introduce yourself, <laughs> Deepu. Uh, my name is Deepu George, and uh, I am a faculty member at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. We are in McAllen, Edinburgh, Texas. And so good morning, afternoon, or good evening. Thank you, Deepu. And then we have Monica Harrison. Good morning, afternoon, or evening. Uh, Monica Williams Harrison. Licensed clinical social worker, I'm also serving on the board of directors for the National Association of Social Workers, doing integrated care, collaborative care in Connecticut and consulting work. I think Grace just wanted us to kind of say how old we are with this <laughs> um, icebreaker question. So I am proudly in my 40s and that's fine. I remember all of the things that everyone else is talking about. I did not watch cartoons on Saturday. Saturday is cleanup day. So you get up and you must clean first before you do anything else. So cartoons were definitely an after school um, thing for me. And Mighty Mouse Here I come to save the day. was my favorite um, cartoon that I would watch. It's interesting. A lot of the cartoons now, like you can still see Transformers, like some of them are rerunning. But I doubt you'll see Mighty Mouse again. But yeah, Mighty Mouse was my favorite and Speed Racer and 
then I got a little older and I wanted to watch Jim. Jim is excitement. You know, so all of those. So it, as I got a little older, the cartoons got a little different, but uh, yeah, fun time. I love it. That's a fun look back. I, uh, I'm not sure I introduced myself either, just in case we have any new listeners. I'm Grace Pratt. I am the behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine Integris Residency Program in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And um, I watched a lot of Mr. Rogers. Uh, it, it takes me back. It makes me just hear that little trolley ding and hear him think of him putting on his cardigans. Still makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. Not a cartoon, but along those lines. Um, we are going to talk pediatrics today. Uh, but before we do that, I, I launched into this conversation because I was thinking this morning, like, what are we going to talk about? And we've done geriatrics in the past. And my plan had been to do pediatrics right after geriatrics, but I was looking back through our archives and thinking, oh, that will have been a few years ago. We could update it, but it never happened because COVID hit. And so uh, we are, you know, revisiting this topic. My heart is really heavy thinking about children today. And I can't not acknowledge the horrific violence that happened in Uvalde this week as we're recording. And I don't, I didn't really plan for this to be, you know, part of our conversation, but I don't know how we can talk about the issues facing children and the, the role that we can play as their healthcare providers without acknowledging this trauma and this just deep lost. And so I want to make some space to acknowledge um, that tragedy. As we're talking, I think um, one of the ways that that connects back to our role in healthcare, and I'm curious to hear from you all as well, is meeting children through primary care and through whatever pediatric care, whatever healthcare that they face to meet the needs that they're having, whether their trauma, whether their general health care, whether their needs of the family and the system. I think one of the things that I hope comes through in our conversation, and I'm really curious to hear from all of you, is the ways that we're specially poised as interdisciplinary teams in primary care to meet children, to meet communities, to address larger systemic needs at all of those levels. Um, and so maybe we start a little bit more big picture this morning, talking about what is the role of integrated care for kids, you know, at those different levels as we're thinking about pediatrics? Well, I, I think, uh, Grace, that the number one thing that kids need, and this actually ref- relates very specifically, I think, to the sense of trauma that we feel and that our kids are feeling these days is they need adults around them that have their shit together. Like that's the number one thing. If you think about what a kid needs, they really just need adults around them that have their shit together. That's it. The other stuff is sort of like, you know, as they say, the icing on the cake, right? And and I think when we think about, when we think about pediatrics, we're not just talking about the very young kids that are, that were directly affected uh, by the shooting, but but even up through adolescence, right? I think what we're seeing nationally with increasing uh, trends of depression, anxiety in uh, young children and adolescents, and with suicide rates increasing in those groups as well, um, increasing 
uh, rates of just expression of self-harm or, or desire for self-harm. I think what's on the one hand both feels disempowering, but I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about how I think there is an empowering component. What feels disempowering is that what's primarily causing that, I think, is uh, the feeling that kids have that the adults around them don't have their shit together and that that destabilizes their world in a way that affects all of us as adults. But because we can structure our own world to a degree, because we have uh, agency in a way that children do not have, we have some buffer for that. But as a child, you don't. You don't have that buffer. And so that feels disempowering because it feels like it's out of our control, right? It feels like it's in some legislators' control. It feels like as if it's in some school system's control or whatever it is. And so that's really frustrating. And that, that as a parent makes me angry, honestly, and, and obviously very sad. On the other hand, I, and I've always felt this about primary care you know, primary care plays an important societal function. It's not just like the direct healthcare function. Primary care is a place in society that holds a certain space for us culturally. You know, we think about uh, traditional cultures and say a medicine man, right? So a medicine man would hold a certain space. And really primary care holds that space, medicine in general, but specifically primary care holds that space for us. And it's a place where when we go, we have should feel a sense of safety around our health, a sense that we have um, a place where we can get help of a certain kind. Um, if you looked at most primary care visits or many primary care visits, a lot of them are just about, they're just talking, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's really just talking. There's not a whole lot that actually often happens. There's many times when pe people come in, they talk and they leave and they actually don't leave with a prescription. They don't leave with labs. They don't leave with anything. They just leave having talked and entered into a space where there is a certain societal, cultural thing that has happened, a transaction that has happened that actually does lead to that person leaving and feeling more whole and well if things went well. And so when you add in uh, integrated care to that, you are enhancing that societal function in an important way. And for kids in particular, I've always thought that what I added when I come in onto a care team is... I added another adult that has their shit together that that child can look to, can feel a sense of support and warmth, can feel uh, that that parent that's working with that child can transfer a sense of confidence in their ability to, to, to help that child develop, to maneuver challenges that that child is dealing with their life, to have a strategy for dealing with any school-related issues that you're dealing with. And so, you know, on, on a, it's a micro level, right? It doesn't solve all these societal problems by any stretch, but I would not shortchange how important it is for, for, for well-organized care teams providing integrated care services to serve that function of being a place where parents and their kids can be safe, can be heard, and, can, and that those childs can interface with adults who are caring, loving, and have their shit together. Sorry for using the word shit too many times there. I was going to use it since you used it. Um, We're going to get an explicit rating. <laughs> I just can't believe that you two are the ones swearing and not me. So well, keep at it. With it, Bridget. Sometimes uh, it's warranted. No, I was just thinking about my time working in pediatrics. Um, and previously, I was also a um, early childhood teacher. So lots of 
lots of times with kids. And I wholeheartedly agree, adults that have their shit together, what I often find is that those adults were raised by more adults who still didn't have their shit together, right? Like it's the, the recurring cycle. And so what I often spent a lot of my time, and I, and I even say now, I just did a, a presentation on stages of development. And ironically, before all this happened, um, the impact trauma has on that, on those mm. stages of development. But I oftentimes say, when you're working with peds, it's not just, it's not just the pediatric patient. Like you have to do some work with the entire family system, um, whoever that caregiver is, parent, guardian, whoever. You have to do some work with them because there are a lot of other layers that feed into whatever that child, whether really young or adolescent, is experiencing. Um, and what I find is a lot of a lot of people negate that part. They they don't spend the same amount of energy or time um, trying to loop in the rest of the family system. Um, and so what I find happens is like you teach these really great skills that then they're trying to go out and apply and they don't have the adults that have their shit together. And, and when I envision Naftali saying have their shit together, it doesn't mean that they don't have issues, right? Like everybody has issues. But if you're in conversation with these adults that have their shit together, but have issues, then they understand what they're looking for, how to nurture the best um, they possibly can out of their child with whatever circumstances are there in place that's causing disruption in the family. I had this image as you were describing that, Monica, of like planting seeds and we can plant seeds in children. We can try to do interventions in children, but if we're not cultivating the family and the community and the environment for those seeds to grow, there's no nurturing. There's no, no amount of us planting seeds in specific children that can come up with the kind of care and growth that we're looking for and hoping for, for them. Yeah. You know, now, on the other hand, I don't want folks out there to feel overwhelmed by that and feel like, because that's, that's especially inexperienced clinicians will sometimes take that and think, well, that now I've got to do, I've got to be the case manager for the family and I've got to, and then, and then they end up like saying, no, no I can't do that. I'll just refer them out. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's not helpful. Right. So, uh, you know, real practically, probably the most challenging pediatric situation I worked in was on the West side of Chicago. Um, Lawndale neighborhood. Anybody from Chicago? Shout out to Lawndale. Loved, loved working there. Um, loved that community. But that community, which was primarily is a half African American, half Mexican immigrant population, had a horrible school system. And so that was one of those contextual areas where the adults did not have their shit together. I promise I'll stop crossing here in a second. Um, but one of the things that we would get in peds often were these referrals for ADHD. And these were complicated situations. So they weren't straightforward, you know, suburban ADHD situations. You know, I'm getting Bs. These were, I'm failing, kid, my kid's failing, you know, having excessive behavioral problems, history of trauma. And so, you know, I learned very quickly that the, the most potent thing I could do, I couldn't fix the school system. School system wasn't uh, able to even do reasonably timed IEPs, and they weren't able to do uh, achievement testing. And so when I would suspect that there would be some form of, of a learning issue that was actually behind some of the attentional issues, I knew that I couldn't just send a letter to the school and say, hey, you need to do some achievement t- testing. I think there's a learning disability because that would happen like a year and a half later, right? In which case, that kid is now way behind in school lots more 
behavioral issues, et cetera. So instead of throwing up my hands up and saying, oh, I got to refer out, which is referred to nowhere, and in doing nothing, what I would do is I'd work with a pediatrician and say, hey, look, we may not think this is 100% ADHD, but we know the stimulants are going to be somewhat helpful here. So let's, in certain cases, let's prescribe these stimulants and at least um, help this person with behavioral issues. And then I would do some very, very brief, quick and dirty, half hour KTs and K-bits in visit, which is not something I, I would do typically in PCBH, but in this case, we made it work within the schedule and all of everything. And that would give me a sense of whether there was some learning disability issues there, more specifically some data. And I would use that to then advocate with the school. I'd talk to the school and say, hey, look, I've got data here that says this child has some learning, learning issues. You guys need to make some accommodations at, at school. And so I was able to do that within a PCBH framework to help those families in key targeted ways. Did that help all of the issues? No, but I was not throwing up my hands and saying, I'm not gonna do anything because there's all these contextual factors. I just chose the contextual factors that I thought I could be most potent with, with my care team partners to support those families. Yeah, I think, in, I can't remember which podcast we had done, but I remember I had brought up about uh, if you're a new BHC, to simply shadow a half day, you don't even have to do a full day, a half day with your pediatrician at your clinic and just watch. You don't even have to say a word. Just join them on a half day in a regular clinic and see what they experience. And I feel like that experiential exercise will demonstrate all the ways in which you can do something and the truth of the matter is, if we uh, as behavioral health consultants can help support our pediatricians and help with recruitment and retention, that's another indirect way that we can fortify the primary care system. And so for there the times where maybe as far as getting an outcome with a specific patient, you're not 100% sure that what you did mattered, um, which... I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like something always matters and you never know what will ripple, but say, let's just for the sake of argument, say what your intervention did with the patient and the patient's family did not do anything. It still did something because you helped out that pediatrician. So I like to think that uh, based on data and other research and uh, patient's perspective that they are saying we're doing something, but even if you just were better than nothing, you were neutral, you still provided a service to uh, our, our pediatricians and fortifying that primary care system that Neftali is talking about is a foundational place where there are hopefully stable adults. So education and healthcare. Yeah, I just wanna um, kind of connect some of the dots that I'm hearing in all of the stories that were um, being shared, right? So I think one is I often see parents not in the driver's seat for their kids' care. Like, can't tell you the number of times that I've seen consults here um, in the clinic where uh, there's like, we gotta, you gotta go see this kid. I was like, great, but who's in the room with the kid? Uh, or where is a mom, dad, or like primary caregiver? Or I have uh, physicians like in my other clinic who will say, hey, do you see kids? And I said, I see parents and their kids. Like I, I have no reason to see kids alone, right? Um, so one is just putting parents back in the driver's seat and giving them the agency and the empowerment to do that. I'm not uh, experienced or expert enough to understand, really understand like on ex extreme spectrums where 
specialty mental health uh, folks work with kids alone, and that's great, and I'm sure it's needed and a necessary service. And at the same time, I feel like uh, in primary care is just like we are kind of connecting the head back to the body for building context for kids. It's really putting the parents back in that parental role, right? And um, being able to connect the dots there. And a lot of the times, the questions that we ask illuminate far more information as to why the symptoms are present and where the misunderstandings are and what are the missing pieces uh, between the kid and the parent and what are the skills that are lacking, right? Um, and so that's just kind of like, um, I don't know if it's my soapbox, but definitely one of the things that I always think about, right? Like, I don't wanna see the kid. I wanna see the kid with the parent, right? I wanna know what's going on. Now, if it's a teenager, there are uh, differences of issues or teenage angst or whatever, sure. I'm going to see the teenager by myself. And at the same time, I'm going to loop the parent back in on whatever the self-management plan is, right? So it may not be that the, the mom or dad needs to be there when they talk about their boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, right? But it may be that they need to do some things at home to monitor their well-being as they go through this process. And parents have a lot of agency in making that happen. Um, so that's, to me, that's what it all boils down to. One, put the... the parent back in the driver's seat, empower them to do their stuff that they need to do with their kids and to kind of, you know, and if the parents don't have their shit together, help them get their shit together, right? Like um, put, putting that back in perspective too. Um, I remember speaking to a dad a few weeks ago. One, uh, the mom, dad, the kid had like, I mean, he was clearly uh, hyperactive so, and they just gave him donuts from Dunkin' Donuts. So he, he was like all over the place when he crashed. And I was talking to the still continuing the visit with the parents and the mom started kind of crying halfway through as I was summarizing. And then I, and I kind of was curious what's going on. She said, this is the first time we've been asked about what's going on for him. We've not been brought into a visit with his uh, child mental health provider and the uh, things that they do. Um, and so that was, like, you know, one of those moments where, you know, how often parents may be disconnected from uh, being actively involved in their child's care. There's another point to, to, to pick up on that, which is the, the cultural point as well. If you are a white provider going into a room with a brown family of any stripe, real important to understand the dynamic there and I think it's helpful to start from a position of understanding that that family needs to trust you first. You know, I think about a Hispanic family in an exam room and you're walking in and although you're going to get a very deferential uh, stance from that family, that doesn't mean that they trust you, right? So they're going to say yes, yes, yes to what you say, but unless you communicate a willingness to listen, to hear, to have their perspective, to get into their shoes. You're going to, you're going to, you know, work on some random intervention and they're going to walk out and it's not, it's just not going to fly essentially. And I would say the same is true of my experience with working with African-American families. I work very hard to show deference and respect to the parents and to treat them as experts and to, to, to align myself with them before I jump in and provide uh, counsel, advice, 
behavior plan, whatever it is. And I'm very, very careful to, the best way I can put this, and I'm sorry for the crass nature, uh, how this may sound, but like not provide white interventions, if that makes sense, right? It's like interventions that might make sense in a white context, a white suburban context, but that don't make sense in a, you know, X type context or that don't make sense culturally even. And, and so that means, that means I have to do some extra work in that to be very careful about my stance in the room. It doesn't mean I'm tentative. Don't read that. I'm still my full, authentic, confident self in that room. It just means that I am attending to the cultural factors that are part of that context, which Bridget loves to bring up always, that are the big mix. That's the secret sauce of making interventions work when you are steeped in that context the intervention fits that context, the context, the people in that context trust you. And then whatever you ask that family to do to help support that child is going to be so much more potent than, you know, the same intervention potentially without all of that other extra work to learn context, to embed yourself, to align with, to treat the parents as experts, et cetera. So I think that's an important cultural dynamic piece that often I've seen does get lost in in interactions with uh, pediatric patients of color. I mean, there's layers to the context, right? So there's the cultural piece and there's the values that oftentimes are overlooked and we go in with our own perception like, oh, well, we're parents and here's what you're supposed to be doing at this stage or whatever without thinking about okay, well, what are the cultural implications here and what are the values for that family, which could be very different than our own? Yeah, and just to jump in before Bridget uh, does her thing, because you you brought up a ex- uh, situation in my mind was very uh, tangible, which is sleep. So like uh, sleep is, um, you wouldn't think it's very culturally loaded, but it is, right? So in white culture, uh, sleep is about structure, or I should say, I should actually not even paint white culture as one broad brush. In certain parts of white culture, I would say particularly higher SES white, uh, sleep is actually a really important cultural value because it relates to the structure of your life. And so in, in certain white subcultures, structure is very important and valued. And so like getting to sleep early, for example, is a value. Right. And so that's going to be transmitted down. And then so if you if you if you come up to a brown family and you're trying to impose that value of, oh, structure, this is the way you you, you know, raise a, a child, a toddler, whatever. And then you're tying in misbehavior and things like that to sleep as an intervention. And it may be that the child is just freaking cranky because they're being kept up late at night and Hispanic families, you know, the joke in my family is, as I'm Hispanic, for those of you who don't know, uh, is that, you know, Hispanic families go shopping together at 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) And it's like the whole family is shopping together because that's what we did. Literally, my family did that. We'd be be 10 o'clock at night because my parents, my dad worked late. We'd all go together to the shopping center. And, you know, you have the little two-year-old you know, up at 11 o'clock at night in the shopping center. Well, that's, that's a cultural value. We go shopping together because that's what we do together as a family, right? We do stuff together as a family, right? So I have to work with that family in a way that understands that value and context. If I'm going to shift that and say, I totally get that that is so important to you. And that's a beautiful part of your culture. Only issue here is that it's kind of affecting the two-year-old 
and their behavior the next day. How do we, how do we negotiate that? What do we do with that, right? That's the kind of conversation they have to have in a nuanced fashion to reach and not, not sort of impose. Yeah, I wrote the word when Natalia was talking, uh, impose down on my notes. And I think that, you know, the joke about I'm a one trick pony, I'm always going to talk about the contextual interview, but, and, and it's not fair necessarily to say that the tool itself is a panacea, but how we approach it, the contextual interview is a living, breathing, dynamic tool that you use in order to have that appropriate stance where it's about the patient or the families, their values, their life. They're, whatever's going on with them, you're join, You're on this journey and you're joining with them. That is so different than the top-down imposing that some folks feel that we now need because, well, we've joined the medical center. Well, the medical culture, and I'm all for joining the medical culture with regards to the way certain things are structured and whatnot, so don't misinterpret that. But when I'm in the room, this is not about... Uh, me telling somebody else what to do because I am the expert and motivational interviewing talks about that solution focused brief therapy is going to talk about that acceptance and commitment therapy is going to talk about that and so forth there's systems we'll talk about that there's a lot of therapeutic orientations but that stance that y'all are, are are talking about it can be executed when you really are humble and you really are curious about like not it, it's not about you I, I we've said that a million times I I go through all the podcasts. This is not about you as the clinician. It just isn't. So, you know, going in the room and telling people to do what to do doesn't work for them either. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's one of our big complaints. I think a lot of times um, about a traditional, like very traditional biomedical model, but it doesn't work for them either. And medicine as a whole and primary care is moving away from that. And I think in, in integration, we are a driving force against that too, because we can say like, yes, all of these problems feel much, much too big. It feels too big for a person to approach. Um, but we don't have to approach it as a person. We are approaching it as a team and with all of the best pieces of our expertise and our skills and our knowledge and all of the ways that we inform each other, but then bringing that to the family and truly partnering with them. Um, again, it's if we can have all the knowledge in the world, if we try to impose it on people, that was a great word. It's not going to get any of us anywhere. But if we're partnering together, primary care is such a, a paradigm shift for that because it's about not letting people fall through the cracks. It's about recognizing DP reference earlier, connecting the head back to the body and seeing the whole person, the whole family, the whole community, the whole system as a piece that we can be a part of. And I think, I think, uh, Grace, you hit on something so important there, which sometimes keeps people from wanting to work with kids and says, oh, I don't want to work with kids. And I think a lot of it is just this fear of, of, of a need to have to solve all the problems. Because it's sort of, it's true of actually every adult interaction you have as well, that context matters, but it's just a little bit more obvious with kids, right? And so it's like, oh man, I can't solve the school problems and oh, the family dynamic stuff. I, I just don't have time for that in primary care. Oh, the, you know, medical stuff and the developmental stuff and all that. And it's like, it's, it, it becomes, it, I can understand why it feels complex and more obviously complex. But 
it's only complex if you think that you are the person that has to fix all that, right? You, you just have to be aware of that. You have to understand those pieces. And then your job, not as you said, Grace, by yourself, but as part of your team, your job is to figure out what's the lever here that I need to do a good job with, right? And I, in the context of my care team, and then figure out what that is and do it. Like, like do your part. Go back to our episode a few months ago about enough is enough and targeting interventions because it is about the little piece. I'm a broken record about some things and I have new students training right now. And I told them one of my favorite examples to see in for them is you're not building the whole house today. You're not even building the whole wall. You're putting one brick in place. Um, And I think that's really reassuring to me. So I want to, though, kind of talk about, okay, so we're, we've talked about these big picture issues, the community issues, the family issues. There are some fun parts about pediatrics and working with kids. Personally, I find it really fun to be a little playful. Kids don't take things as seriously. Um, and so you can go in the room and cut up a little bit and connect with them in a different way. Um, what does it look like? either broadly for you guys to be playful in the room or what are some of the things that you really like about getting to connect with kids in integrated care? I just love getting to know them, getting to know their hobbies. I feel like we've talked about this before, but when our interns, they get really stuck with kids and they're like, well, I don't know what to do. Cause of course, you know, there's that fix it mentality as you know, is very natural and normal developmentally. Uh, but it's like, just forget all that. Just get to know them. What, what makes we talk about what it makes adults tick, like what makes the kids tick, what is meaningful to them. And you get them talking about what they are into, it opened their, their entire shell in their face, the whole room feels different. I think uh, walking into a room with a kid, it's always exciting because you don't know what can happen, right? There's like this, uh, you, you kind of get like yes and mode with the kid. And then you, you still know you got to gather important information. And so it's like a, uh, a dance between what's uh, he or she going to offer me and how am I going to use that to kind of get into the mode of breaking uh, whatever we need to break, you know, break the ice, break the, uh, the whatever, maybe blocking that uh, connection and um, get them to guide me to where they want us to go. Right. So that's always an interesting uh, process for me. One of the other things that I think about is like with teenagers, uh, as they're kind of uh, getting, you know, leaving their childhood, becoming teenagers, uh, those are sometimes tougher consults, right? Like, so I remember when I was like in training, uh, <laughs> I, had to, well, I walked into a room, I think she was like 13, 14. Uh, basically, she like had her hair cover her face and was just laying on the exam table like this. And didn't want to engage, right? Did not want to say, like, wouldn't respond to anything. And I just didn't know what to do. And uh, I wasn't thinking improv, yes, and at that point. (laughs) I was like, oh, I'm frozen and I don't know what to do. And uh, so I actually just sat down uh, and I probably very shakily said, hey, uh, it looks like you don't want to talk right now. And I'm just going to sit here for a few minutes. And I just sat there. And then after, I think like 10 minutes, she like got up, pushed her hair back and she said, okay, I'm ready to talk now. And, you know, so it, it 
took me a while to kind of just establish the visit, but you know, uh, forcing my way through wasn't going to help. So. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I have a, uh, a weird sense of humor. And so it comes out with kids a lot. I just love joking around with kids, especially young kids in the room. And so there are times when like, so a lot of consults are more directed at the parent, right? So, so I'm like talking to the parent, but I'm always from the very get go, I interface first with the kid and then ask the kid's permission to actually talk with the parent and say, you know, we're, we're going to be talking here. Is that okay if we talk about you? You know, cause you often don't like actually ask the kid's permission. Like we're going to be talking about you in this room, you know, you're here, you know? And then, so we'll go through that, but then I'll, I'll like periodically turn back to the kid and just make a joke about something, you know, like, uh, you know, it could be like, yeah, you know, I like, I like eating garbage. I mean, I just think it's tasty and different, you know? And the kid will just look at me and this weird look like, and he'll look at the parent and look at, you like eating garbage? That's crazy. No one likes eating garbage. That's not true. It's like, yeah, I like eating garbage, you know? And I just like run with it for a little bit until, you know, we just, you know, let it off. And it, it just is, you have that opportunity to like engage and be playful and, and show like, hey, yes, we're talking about this other stuff. We're maybe talking about your school behavior, you know, and we're talking about things you've probably heard a bazillion times your parents complain about with you. And when you're able to just have fun and make that connection, kids kind of, um, I find if, <laughs> if I don't take my weird humor too far, uh, kids, kids can mellow. They, they, they enter this space where they begin to trust you and open up and feel like, oh, this is an adult I can talk to. You know, this is an adult I can you know, share some things with. And I, I love that challenge. I, I just think it's a great, it's a fun clinical challenge. It's just so fun to have that energy with, uh, with the right kids. I, I remember this one story of this kid, this is a Hispanic family I was working with. And this is not something I would recommend necessarily, but somehow the, the mom brought up this whole thing of the chupacabra, which is this mythical animal creature in, in uh, particularly Mexican culture. And uh, the chupacabra was going to get the kid because he wasn't behaving or something like that. And I was like, oh, that's not the right way to kind of approach behavior management. You know, um, I didn't say that out loud, but I had to figure out a cultural way to kind of work through all of that. And so we turned it into a joke with the kid. Right. And so I, I turned it, I, I made it obvious that like, no, the chupacabra is not going to get you sort of as a subtext. But, and then every time I would see that kid for subsequent, like just wellness, well visits or whatever, he would bring that up, you know, he'd bring the chupacabra up and we would laugh in the hallway, you know, kind of a thing. And that's the kind of thing that I think, um, you know, working with kids, it's just a great opportunity to, to enjoy and have joy out of it. Yeah, I I agree with everyone. I think just they're, they're, it's infectious, like they're just jovial most of the time like there are some that are not but most of the time you know it's really infectious and I think um the amount of information and the the seeds that you could plant um through the rapport and engagement with kids um and play even for your adolescents who you think they're not going to want to do this little kitty thing guess what yes they do and I don't know I think it's just all around I think my um, the biggest challenge to me is 
I mean, and that's just for me, is adolescence, but in a good way. Um, I feel like they can be so finicky, like you could have worked with them for weeks and y'all could be great. And then you say that one wrong thing and it's like you're back at square one, um, which I'm laughing because it's like, you know, it's going to happen. And you're like, oh, hey, oh now we're back at square one. And you just you keep rolling with it. But um, just those nuances, uh, you know, you guys can't see the, the chat, but Deepu said it's like improv. It is. You can have the best laid out plans and it's going like, sorry, session is going to the left today. Um, but I love it. I absolutely love it. It's just when you think they're going to zig, they zag. Uh, and I love to ask kids at the end, like, you know, we talked about a lot of things today. Are there questions that you have or things that you're wondering about? And it's always a question like, who drew that picture <laughs> on the wall of the artwork in the exam room? Or, uh, you know, my kid is the worst of all this. He asked his doctor at one of his appointments, um, do you have any robots at your house? <laughs> Like, not exactly what we meant when we were asking any questions, but, you know, that's clearly a need to note that he's into robots. Um, and so it is about kind of that discovery. And I, I think working with kids and teenagers uh, really brings out my creativity because I have to translate, okay, here's this idea I have of what might be therapeutic for them based on everything that we've talked about. But then how do I put that in a package that it's not like, a sleep hygiene sparkle. <laughs> like that is not going to resonate right. with anybody. Right. Um, so what does it look like to do that playfully? What does it look like to blow bubbles to learn deep breathing? What does it look like to, you know, laying them on the exam room and put something silly on the Kleenex box on their belly and see if they can move it with their breathing or different ways that we can engage um, their mind and their body and just being creative and spontaneous in the moment has really been a lot of fun. That's a great point. I had not connected that grace the way you just mm -hmm. put that it takes creativity and spontaneity, which makes sense because that's a lot of the inner world of children mm -hmm. and teenagers. It's in that space of like, you know, more butterfly mode. Right. Yeah. And I think that's why to your point, Monica, when we lose them, especially teenagers, I find that for me, I realized, oh, I lost them because I put my dad voice on. Mm -hmm. you know, I went into dad mode and dad mode doesn't work in the office. <laughs> it barely works at home, but uh, definitely doesn't work in the office. I always tell our newbies to remember that we're part of the man uh, just by being adults in a healthcare system. And so they, it, you need to show in some way that you are not part of that. Uh, and I actually do that a lot by, uh, oh man, revealing this. Uh, throwing a well-timed shit out there. <laughs> it can earn you some, earn you some credit. And you sure. have, you have to read the situation. Uh, but the amount of eyes of like, and then all of a sudden it's turned on and they're, they're talking in a completely different way. They're saying all these things because you've through your actions demonstrated that you are not part of exactly the way Niftali is saying, like the dad boy, like I'm not part of that. This is different. This is, this is about you. This isn't about me saying what's right or wrong and blah, 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 blah. This is about helping you to live a life you want to live. I know we talk about that all the time with adults, but I, I feel that's uh, just as strongly with, um, with teens and children. Yeah. And in an authentic way, right? I mean, you can't, you can't right. fake it because the other thing is that teens sniff out inauthenticity. They're like, oh, I'm going to say shit. Yeah. Like, no, it has to be like, 
when you go to school, you're tired of this shit. And they're like, oh my God, like you get me, you know? So, I, and the only way you can make it authentic is if you join them in their story and in their world. And imagine what's it like to wake up being in their shoes? What's it like to go to school? What's it like for each of those aspects? And so that's, again, back to the contextual interview, being this living, breathing thing is that like, that's the whole goal is to join their world so that when you do say things, it makes sense. Uh, it's not, you know, some type of algorithm that you're trying to, well, I heard on the podcast, Dr. Beachy said to use the word shit with teenagers to show you're not part of the system. It Quote of the day right there. Quote of the day. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Dr. I, Beachy said to use the word shit. Yeah. In, in some ways, I hate to wrap up our conversation, um, but I want to uh, kind of invite people to extend it through a couple different resources. First of all, we're about to have a special segment with our pediatric special interest group. But also, you know, we have in this conversation spanned everything from the very, very macro to the very, very micro of throwing shit into your sessions. Now we've all said it. I think I had been the holdout through the episode, but we've all said it. And I want to highlight an article that was published this year um, in Training and Education and Professional Psychology by a group out of Michigan um, led by Hannah Hamm and some other authors titled Competencies in the Practice of Pediatric Integrated Primary Care, a Continuum of Training. And we'll put the link in the show notes to the small part of it. But they put out a list of competencies that get very specific, but just like our conversation today, go from the macro to the micro. So if you're doing some reflecting and thinking, like hopefully you have found purchase, like you found a foothold somewhere in our conversation today of something you can extend, something you can connect with in your work. But just to further extend that, I think looking over those competencies, I think self-evaluation and a piece of reflection and that continual growth mindset is such a key part of staying involved and educated in our field, which I know is really important to all of us here. Um, So even just reading through these competencies and asking yourself, where am I doing great? And where could I lean in a little harder and grow? That's kind of my hope for our listeners. Um, We're about to have a special segment with our pediatric special interest group. FHA has awesome opportunities to connect with people who have shared interests, and we're going to feature some of the cool things that they're doing in their group. Well, hello. Welcome. I'm really thankful you could join us on the podcast today. Could you start by introducing yourself? Hi, Grace. Thank you so much for inviting us to to participate. So uh, my name is Maria Jesus Arrojo. Uh, My nickname is Chus. It's a short for Maria Jesus. Um, I'm a LMFT and LMHC as well, and I my role is uh, an integrated uh, behavioral health uh, manager for the pediatric physician organization at Boston Children's, what we call the PPOC. So we I'm I work in Western Mass, um, and in the PPOC we have different regions that we different integration managers support um, the pediatric practices to develop their integrated programs and then supporting their behavioral health integrated clinicians. Um, So my region is the West region of the state. Um, That's why I'm located in Western Mass. And I started being part of this uh, pediatric SIGA CFHA. Oh, I don't remember one. You know, losing track of time with COVID, I think is a common (laughs) disease. But um, after a while, I became part of the leadership team this year. So I co-chaired the, the SIG with, with Matt. And 
we have a wonderful team that and we have monthly leadership meetings where we discuss how our uh, monthly membership meeting is going to look like and as well as yeah things like the allow for the conference uh, this year and so on i wonder if you could tell me a little bit more broadly either inside this SIG or from your experience, um, what are some of the issues facing integrated care that are specific to pediatrics these days? Well, we actually um, started focusing this year on the youth mental health crisis. So we took the Surgeon General Advisory and we are trying to break it into small pieces, work with the recommendations uh, of the advisory and um, build that into the SIG. So the SIG traditionally has a couple of segments that continue for this year. There are, this is how we do it segment in which we invite any of the participants to share how they do a specific part of the integrated work. And then we have a research corner that we are trying to pair uh, to the topic of, of discussion for that month. So we are aligning both now. So as an example, we started working on the advisory by starting with the recommendation of screening for mental health. So that was one of our meetings this year. And therefore, the the research corner was on an article that addressed whether um, screening for ACEs or or having positive childhood experiences and and adverse childhood experiences conversations was better than, than... uh, going with the screening, and then we had a discussion based on that. Then we also had um, one of the monthly meetings focusing on the bridge to nowhere. That was very popular because I think these days everyone's struggling with access, and those who work on step care models find it really hard to have someone on the other end taking the kids to transition from for bridge care to, to specialty care. So we discussed uh, creative solutions, um, how to reorganize your internal resources, as well as um, optimizing the external resources. We cannot perhaps create more access, but we can optimize the access and do a better job uh, about our own triage and what we take care of at home versus sending out. We also talked about the role of uh, care enhancers um, as part of the team and how we could perhaps structure a little better who does what in our teams. So we free time from, from the VH roles for other tasks if we really train the, the caring cancers to do perhaps addressing the screenings or do the self-management um, of, of the mild uh, patients. So those are the type, type of discussions we, we are having. I, I appreciate that overview because what I'm getting from you is that the SIG really focuses on looking at high-level issues, looking at recommendations that come out, looking at research, but also connecting that to the real lived experience of the implementation on the ground. And I think that bridge is so important to hear from people like, okay, this is the guideline, But in reality, like what in the world does that look like? And just knowing that there are people in the same boat as you can be so validating. Yes. And I think it's one of the successes of the SIG is to bring the research uh, back to to the real practice. Rachel does a great job with that. And we we all love that, that part of the meeting. But also 
having the ability to to discuss it afterwards. Um, I just remember what was our last one was on addressing the mental health of the caregivers and other family members. And that was a very interesting conversation too, because, you know, it's, it's a piece that is, I think, still needs a lot of development. How, how do we do this without, you know, making our work even harder to, to have more with less resources? But it's definitely, you know, we cannot do it without the family. The family is the core of, of the life of, of the kids that we see. So how, how are the different organizations addressing it and how are the people who come to the SIG uh, working with them with the specific examples of, of family work? I think that's so powerful. Um, and, you know, I'm sure, I, I don't know if, you know, I'm an MFT also as well as you. So anytime we're able to make things systemic and uh, recognize that influence of the family, we're always going to squeeze it in there. Um, yeah. Are there any particular projects that the SIG has been working on that people might be interested to hear about? So we decided to do the ELO this year at the conference, um, also in the Surgeon General Advisory recommendations. So in a way we are, it's, it's a parallel process with the SIG. We are addressing these uh, recommendations in the SIG and then uh, we will bring that to the ELO in a participatory way, um, more than any didactic. That's, the, that's what we are planning for. Um, so it's, it's good the way we are addressing it in the SIG because we get different perspectives from different people and we are going to gather all that and, and you know, present best practices. Um, also, we at the end of every SIG, we send our resources uh, that uh, everyone shared so everyone can benefit from, from what you know, each other <laughs> are doing and, and the knowledge is, is shared. We like the socio-academic, um, socio-emotional. <laughs> Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, how would someone get involved if they were interested in being part of your group? So they just have to jump in. Um, you know, we have, uh, there is a Zoom link that you just have to click on and, and join. There is no requirements. There is nothing uh, other than the, the ability to be there. And if you can um, participate, fine. And, and if you can only listen in, that's fine too. Some people might be in settings that they cannot put their video on or, or they just know that they have to be muted. That's perfectly fine. We, we don't have any criteria. We just like people to come and be there. Um, so, you know, ideally that would be happening in person, but for that, it's impossible even pre-COVID or post-COVID because we are at different places in the country. And, you know, so we have to get used to this. <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes when we, it's a, a bit of a paradox because we find our people finally, but they're not with us. And so we have to figure yeah. out how to build that network. Um, but at the same time, there is something interesting, I think, about connecting with people it can feel so lonely sometimes in these positions, but to find the ones that are doing the same work and who are interested in the same things that we're interested in can be really powerful. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add as we wrap up? Um, I, you just mentioned something that I think is super important for LMFTs, which is working in organizations with our systems-oriented thinking and um um, understanding of, of how that goes for you know families but also larger si systems 
how we can enrich the teams in, in a unique way, but also how these roles are enriching to us uh, that we don't have to limit ourselves to, to the work with the families. I think we can assess systems well and, and navigate them in, in a different way. And, you know, it's just a, another contribution to the field. So I just want to say that because you mentioned. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yes, it's always, again, it's about finding our people. <laughs> I think we stick together well. Uh, well, thank you so much for sharing this and spending this time with us today. And I'm really hoping that, you know, out of this, it helps more of our listeners find their people and connect with you guys in the SEG and, um, come to appreciate all of the wonderful work that you're doing. That would be fantastic. So if everyone, come on, join us on the sea. <laughs> also in the yellow, it's going to be fun. And we're going to learn from each other. So thank you so much, Grace. Thank it was you. Great. I thank you all so much for being back with us uh, this month. Like I said at the top of the show, I really missed you last month. And I am going to hand it to Deepu for our closing. All right. We started off at thinking about Uvalde, Texas, and I know that kind of brings us hurt and reflection and a series of emotions, but um, all of us to an extent and more so families in Uvalde are in a place of woundedness and uh, kind of want to leave uh, with a poem called Wound is the Place. Uh, by Rumi. Trust your wound to a teacher's or God's surgery. Flies collect on a wound. They cover it, those flies of your self-protecting feelings, your love for what you think is yours. Let a teacher wave away the flies and put a plaster on the wound. Don't turn your head. Keep looking at that bandaged place. That's where the light enters you. And don't believe for a moment that you are healing yourself. Thank you. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, everyone. And we'll talk to you again next month. Mm-hmm.